Hello, you're listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for this week, the week ending Friday the 25th of August. We're on Triple R every weekday morning from 6 to 9am, broadcast live from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this podcast, what a privilege to be joined in studio by Michael Long, recipient of the Order of Australia Medal, Indigenous activist and of course legendary player for the Bombers. He joined us in studio to talk about the long walk. We debate the fine line between stealing or borrowing. Laura Pietro-Bond reviews The Comforting Weight of Water by Rowena McClelland. And I experiment with wearing a high-vis vest and the responsibilities that come with it. Film reviewer Wilcox wigs out on the new Money Bro movie, Blackberry. Lauren Clark is back on Breakfasters with her memoir. Would that be funny? Growing up with John Clark. And on the first day of Radiothon 2023, we speak with the creative force behind this year's instant classic poster, On a Wall Near You, Ty Snaith. Melbourne's own Triple R. Michael Long, named in Essendon's Team of the Century, is a dual premiership winner, Norm Smith medalist and two-time All-Australian who played 190 AFL games, kicked 143 goals and in 2007 was inducted into the Australian Football Hall of Fame. Recognised as a trailblazer for Indigenous players, in retirement, Long embarked on an historic trek, walking over 650 kilometres from his home in the suburbs of Melbourne to Parliament House in an effort to put Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander issues back on the national agenda. 20 years on, with that moment having blossomed into Australia's largest reconciliation event, Long is doing it again. And to tell us what's ahead and the continued legacy of the Long Walk, the hardest nails wingman and Northern Territorian of the Year joins us now. Michael Long, welcome to Breakfasters. Uh, 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 thank you. Thank you for inviting me along this morning, yes. Oh, it's our pleasure. How do you grapple with what you started with the Long Walk? Does it feel like seven changes of Prime Minister ago? <laughs> yeah, it was a bit like that. Um, I, I suppose when you reflect back at um, why we walk and, and when we walk, you know, it's, it's 19 years ago. And we brought forward our, uh, obviously, the 20th uh, anniversary, which in line, you know, what, what we're asking today as part of a referendum and, and uh, a voice to Parliament and um, an acknowledgement of, of uh, Indigenous people um, in the Constitution and, and things that you know, uh, that matter to Indigenous people, you know, um, which to have a say in, especially with closing the gap. So 19 years ago, that was one of the reasons behind the walk, you know, coming home from another funeral, family, um, actually my wife's extended family, and, um, you know, it was 19 years ago that uh, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Commission was being abolished at that time. And that was the only voice... uh, at that time, that was obviously discussing issues relating to Indigenous uh, people. Um, and then when it was abolished, you know, the, the three things that we really focused on was, you know, where, where was the vision for Aboriginal people going to come from? Uh, where was the voice going to come from, the dialogue with government, working with government at the end of the day? But more importantly, where was the love, you know, for Aboriginal people in, in our own backyard? So 19 years on, you know, we're talking about this and the gap has widened. Um, and so, you know, a lot of the values that the Long Walk have are very similar, you know. So that was, that's why it's very important this year that, that we, bought, we brought it forward a year. Um, obviously um, now, obviously this weekend, it's the start of it all. So um, really looking forward, excited, you know. Um, obviously with the Yes campaign, we've done a bit of work and promoting... Uh, the Yes 23 campaign. We're in Hobart last week, and I think earlier that week we were out at Springvale, you know, um, talking to the multicultural community. 
So I think there's a groundswell. There's a lot of work being done, and um, you know, this is just part of hopefully big push that when we go into rural towns, I think Shepparton's one of the, the towns, and Aubrey Wodonga. I think Yass is our, I think our last one, so that we bring in communities, school groups, sporting groups, and we want people to join along and, and, and um, register on our website, the Long Walk website, because th- this is about Australia, this is about our community. I mean, taking it back to grassroots, you know, um, but it's, you know, one of the things that um, when I was in Gama, I think about three or four weeks ago, feels that long ago, um, you know, one of the questions from the Aboriginal uh, mob was, you know, we're only 3% of the population, you know. How are we going to, you know, make this happen without, you know, non-Indigenous people? But I said, you know, we're all Australian. We, we've actually got to work hard to, to make this happen, you know. So I suppose as a footballer and past player, I've seen what football can do, you know, and what it continues to do. And, it, and it's not perfect, but um, it's paved the way uh, terms of a lot of things in terms of racism, uh, breaking down different barriers. So, um, yeah, uh, and, and they, they were one of them. Only, I think the only sporting organisation that was at Karma. Um, mm. Obviously the Prime Minister didn't make that announcement, but I think he's making an announcement today that uh, the referendum, I think, vote will be on the 14th of October. Mm-hmm. When, you, when you set out on the long walk 19 years ago, is it something that you thought you'd be doing this far down the road? No, well, um, I suppose you thought that, um, you know, the, the closing the gap stuff, um, the challenge we face would have got better, but, but it hasn't, mm. you know. Um, and um, we wouldn't be having these discussions, you know. would have been great not talking about the gap, you know, um, talking about equality. This is um, the Uluru statement is from the people to the government and and bringing um, all Australians together. You know, there's a lot of myths around um, where the Uluru statement come. So it was is from the people. You know, asking Australians, it's time now that we move on as as people. And there's a lot of love in it and bringing people along with um, Aboriginal people. So yeah, I didn't think you know, 19 years on. That, that the gap would widen, you know, and I think we've for, forgotten to care, you know, what's happening, you know, have we forgotten that? And um, um, this is not a handout, this is a hand up, you know, and, and, and I think as grandparents and fathers and uncles, and um, we've got to leave this place in a better shape than what we, what we previously saw, you know, as our parents growing up and, and family and friends. So... Um, I'd love to see this happen in our lifetime and, and time's not always on our side and time's been 19 years ago. So we've got to make this happen now. You know, we've got to move forward. What is it about the simplicity of this idea that resonates and does affect change? Well, um, it's about being included in the decision-making, you know, um, and I think there's been um, evidence shown that when you have Indigenous people part of the decision making, part of the discussion, that it get, uh, uh, those discussions happen at the highest level but also at community level, you know, and I think that's one of the things that people have pointed out as part of the whole referendum, um, that it's got to do both. But you've got to have both. You've got to have the middle part as well as people making decisions at the highest level, discussing at that level, or also community level. And whether we've got to fix that, and we should be able to do that, you know. I mean, there's things that 
obviously challenges we face in different in, in our democracy. We try and get the best result. So um, all of that needs to change. And whether that norm's not working, the normal, we've got to change that to actually make it more effective. Are there any memories that, or a handful of memories that kind of really stay with you from that original walk you did 19 years ago that that has got you kind of obviously excited to get back out there? Or yeah, well, I think it's the friendships forged mm. along the way, and people came for an hour or they came for a day, and and we shared some of those why why we're walking, and um, obviously a few of our members have passed on, but. Uh, um, Friend of ours wants to come along. He, he's sort of, he can't, he's in a wheelchair, but um, you know they they still hold that precious to their life. It's something that that happened in their lifetime, you know. Um, but it was probably the people who come along and just probably come along to talk why um, that engaged, and you could sense the the feeling of people ringing on and radio. There were people from all over that that just came and. To be a part of it, and you saw the good goodwill and love in people, you know. Mm. And I think um, you know, we're talking about this 19 years on. You know, it's it, it shouldn't happen. You know, it shouldn't happen, especially in, in a great country like Australia. Well, the walk was so successful, you didn't quite finish it, did you? No. Well, um, we got the call from the government because um, they was finishing the sittings in Canberra, so we got to Wodonga and uh, had to, to go to Canberra. So um, I was a bit thankful for that because <laughs> the old blisters and I think everyone else was blistered up as well. But it, it was about the cause mm. um, and, and I think it got the, um, the ears of the nation, it got the ears of the government um, and it got the ears of the people and community. So I think a lot of the work was done, the messaging and, and that to, to the community. That, that's where the power is and that's where... You know, you're talking to people. How do we how do we change this? You know, so um, it wasn't just about talking to government; it's about talking to to Australians. There's more to do, and uh, however, you have accomplished so much. What are you? Is what you're most proud of? Does that change? I mean, I'm thinking of the Learning and Leadership Centre in Darwin. Uh, there was a cup on the weekend in your honour. Uh, is there anything that? speaks to you is like actually this has been all worthwhile the 1993 goal <laughs> exactly <laughs> um i don't i don't know uh, uh, I, I don't reflect too much you know on what you achieve I, I yeah whether that's um it's actually rob robo asked me that question on 360 and I, and I bumped into david park and you know he said what what you've done and achieve and i said uh, I, I don't really reflect too much and because our Totems, the sharks, so from the Tiwi oh. Islands, and and it can't go backward. Sharks got to move forward. Mm. Whether that's part of um, the thinking and uh, makeup, um, but no, I, I don't know. They, they wouldn't. I mean, I love my football, and you talk about premierships <laughs> and legacies and uh, moments you you share with people. They're they're there for life, and same as the walk. You know that that uh, the relationships were forged there, and. That, that continued today. I was only talking to my cousin last night, you know, um, when we first started the walk, you know. Um, yeah, you reflect, you reflect. And, and there's moments in our life that happen, like uh, as anything that, you know, you rejoice on or, or, or you, you've done well in. Um, 
you know, those those are things you remember. But I, I don't reflect too much. But yeah, I, I um, yeah, whether that's just um, not for me to judge, but um, you know, I, I'm thankful <laughs> I, I've been able to use the platform of football to go on and 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 do other things. You know, as 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 a young kid, your, your parents are you know two important people, and you know, Kevin Sheedy's probably been. An important person in my life has taught me about you know being a being a good person, helping others, um, being a coach and like a father figure. So, and he's he's a great Australian, you know. So all those influences and people along the way in life. But there's probably not one thing. But you know, uh, yeah. Now as a as you're 19 years on, your your grandfather, your I think your role in life changes, and that's why I see it important. We, we've got to live this country and and uh, in a better place than what we left it. And it's kind of happened in, in our generation. I mean, we've been, it's not the first time uh, that Indigenous people have been asking for change. You know, it just hasn't come around the last two years. You know, you've got beautiful people like Pat Dotson. You know, he, he's a real good man. He's been the father of reconciliation for a long time and worked with governments. Only Pat Anderson, you know. Um, you know, you had only Lowacha O'Donoghue, you had Uncle Charlie Perkins. You had all these people who've been advocating for a long time about change and equality. So um, it's going to happen. It's going to happen now, and that, that's why um, I feel that change and time is now. You know, because time, we, we, I think, we take for granted, and you know, we're only on this earth for so long. Um, and um, the world's not perfect, but. We've got our role to play as as Australians and and as humanity. Mm. AFLNT describes you as the man with the magical goose step. Are you going to drag that out <laughs> on the, during the six hundred and fifty k's? I don't know. It, I don't know if it'll come out. It'll be uh, sort of might be the Michael Jackson walking backwards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, likely. But no. Um, look, that that's probably you know we we'd love people to come along and, and share the load. Really share the load uh, with the walk. So. Um, as we said, we we're going to have the original walk next year, so um, the pre-season training is uh, partly there, but not, <laughs> not, not all there. Yeah. So where do you want us to go? Let's say the launch event at oh, yep. on Sunday, uh, this in Sunday 27th of August at the uh, Melbourne Town Hall. Yep, yep. If people can register online at the long walk, um, Melbourne Town Hall starts at 1030 uh, obviously speeches and I think we leave just before 12. Um, but, yeah, if people could register online, um, I think there's a capacity of 2,000. Um, but um, if people can register, they don't have to come the first day, but we'd love them to be there as part of the start. Different legs of the walk, uh, you can see online where we're going to be. Obviously the towns we're going to be walking into the halls, um, obviously Shepparton's a major town we're going to be doing and Wodonga and, and Yass I think is the last one until we get to Canberra. So, yeah, please join us. All different organisations, all with wrap plans, um, uh, sporting organisations, we'd love to join along um, because, um, you know, this is something, you know, I feel in, in my lifetime uh, is really important and I've been part of the walk, but this is a time in our nation that that uh, I think we can hopefully make change and move forward together. 
Well, join Michael Long as part of the long walk. First stop is, naturally enough, Windy Hill <laughs> on the Sunday yep. and head to thelongwalk.com.au to register and for more details. Michael Long, a great pleasure to meet you. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Triple R. When I get stuck into a little bit of like borrowing specifics, do's and don'ts, and maybe a bit of etiquette, because mm. I recently have been accused of stealing something that I thought I was borrowing. So it's a fine line, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. apparently. So I also want to start or preface this story by just telling you all how much I love smoothies. Okay. I love smoothies and I have them every day. And I um, lost the bottom of like my Vitamix kind of thing that I make the smoothies with. The blade part. The blade, exactly. And my boyfriend also has the a Vitamix, never uses it, gathering dust in his cupboard or whatever. And so maybe he said in passing once, I was like, oh, no, I lost the blade somewhere. He said in passing, I'm almost certain. He's like, oh, I'll just take the bottom of mine maybe in the future. I'm not sure. But I was over at his house. He wasn't there maybe a, a couple of weeks ago. I took the blade and it had gone unnoticed until just last week. And he saw it and he said, oh, you stole the bottom of my Vitamix. I was like, no, I did not steal it. There was an offer extended Mm -hmm. that you don't remember. Mm. I took it. I'd had it maybe for a couple of weeks. The intention was there to give it back. He was like, were you going to give it back though? I go, 100%. It's not just because it was noticed. It It was the intention. So he is adamant that I stole it because he doesn't remember giving the permission. But I maintain that it's borrowing because my intent is to give it back. You – so straight out of the gate, yep. I'm on your boyfriend's side. What? Yeah, because – Why? A few, okay, a few factors. Okay. How long was the period between him saying you could borrow his part mm. and you borrowing it? Maybe, maybe like two weeks or something. <laughs> okay, that's – it's not looking good for you. Okay. Really? The second bit, he wasn't home when you took it. No. And you didn't tell him. No. <laughs> you he, but he doesn't use it and I but feel like. Why didn't you tell him? Why didn't you just say well, next time you were in the room together, oh, remember how you said I could borrow that blade? Can I take it now? Because I want a smoothie tomorrow. I wasn't intentionally withholding the information. It just never really came <laughs> up. And I was like, he doesn't use it anyway. And I was like, yeah, it just, I always just seem to forget. And I feel like it's imp- like we, there's certain relationships where it's always borrowing. Mm-hmm. It's like if I can't take the bottom of your Vitamix that you don't use, what is the point of being in a relationship? <laughs> but where's your incentive to replace your lost ah. blade mm. if you've got one, purloined one yeah. and not even alerted the original owner? 
Is it? Is it? Who was going to buy the next blade? Oh, you, I hadn't gotten to that yet. Yeah, well, of course, you were never going to get to it. <laughs> I was so dehydrated. You weren't incentivized to get it. I was so dehydrated from the and, and malnourished oh. from the lack of smoothies. That's I was just regathering my strength to then go deal with that shit fight of so, trying to replace. I mean, can you even just replace a single part? I've never had. Well, you've obviously that. looked into it deeply. You're so committed to this returning of the bone. You were just interested in purloining. That's oh, all you- <laughs> wowie. I just didn't want to create more waste. It was environmental, the reason. So, what it, so he found out that you have borrowed it. Well, you said, he saw it. He saw word. it, yeah. And I was like, oh, no, I'll typically give it back. Do you want it now? Let me wash it and let me give it back yeah, now. Yeah, so now. I can collect dust in your cupboard. Oh, here, please, please, please. Uh, what are you putting your smoothies? Is Nothing. it a coincidence that you commenced this borrowing transaction when he wasn't home? <laughs> no, I was just like, I just saw it. Like you saw an opportunity and you took it. Yes, <laughs> I think it's just. I think the it's it, it, the intent. I think was for him to always let me borrow it, and then we uh, swiftly replace it. All right, okay. So it's not looking great for me. <laughs> what about? All right, I'll take it. I'll take it. Um, what about you two? Like, how do you go with? Are you? openly kind of receptive when someone offers to lend you something? Are there items that you I like never people borrow offer out? to lend things. Mm. To me, I think it's really nice. And also we've been the recipient of lots of things with the baby, friends who have had babies before us and you can borrow our yeah. whatever until we have another one. Yeah, okay. And then it's you will pass that on. <laughs> There's a bit of pressure in that because you think, well, you have it then like – Assumingly, you have you have that for a, you have that for a long time. Mm. Like they they might not have another baby for two years. So then it's like, well, then do I keep? The, can I sublet the item to a third person, and then they give it back to you when you're ready? And what if then you decide not to have a second baby? And then, and then what then, if you forget? So where actually, you as I'm saying it? this, how dare my friends lend me their things? How dare they <laughs> put that pressure on me? I've got another specific one pivoting from the babies. Okay, so a dinner party. You take a dish, you like the dish, um, but you f- forget about it. Okay, no, let's say you host the dinner party, mm-hmm. you realise that you're in possession of a lovely dish, you know who it belongs to, but you quite like it. Is this it. like physical crockery? Mm-hmm. Yeah, not a pie, like a pie dish yeah. or something. Right. Exactly. Pie's been eaten. Yeah, lovely yeah, dish. And so is the onus on you to contact that person and return it? the dish that you love and maybe you don't have yourself or are you like, well, if they really want it back, they'll contact me. I would just wait. Yeah, I'd yeah. just wait. But not because I have any intention of stealing it, but just because I can't be bothered. See, it comes back to the intention. Aha. Mm. Uh-huh. Well, well, well. I you don't believe you're skating inti- on me. There's no evidence. I think you're lying about your intention. Yeah, that's no. it. But no. I intend, true. what is that? Is that a broad is that a character assessment of yourself? Like I, when I borrow, I return, and therefore I must have intended to give it back. No, because I was waiting for him to go. Oh, that's mine. Just like you said with the dish. But <laughs> if he, ha- oh no, I think I would also never want to take someone's dish, plate, platter, whatever. Yeah. Because assuming they'd come over for dinner, they might come over again, and then well, how embarrassing if you serve something up and they go, oh, that's. That's mine. I was wondering where that was. Yeah. yeah. Well, the the idea is that it's like you're here, here's your dish back. Mm. Mm. Whereas it looks like your boyfriend has 
maybe seen you make a lot of smoothies. <laughs> Which he's benefiting from, by the way. Oh, that's true. He's nutrients. getting half these smoothies some of the time. Half of the smoothies. Some, some of, of the, the time. time. <laughs> what a terrific compromise. <laughs> yeah. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. Stepping in to talk fiction on breakfasts, we're joined by publishing's precocious stalwart, Laura Pietrobon. Morning, Laura. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. Thanks for having me in today. I am here to talk about The Comforting Weight of Water by Rowanna McClelland. Um, this is a debut novel by uh, Rowanna and it is published by Wakefield Press uh, down in SA. And it is a spec fic set in a hopefully far but potentially near, who knows, sometimes future, uh, where it rains all day. And when I say it rains all day, it rains 23 hours of the day, non-stop, drip, pour, apart from one hour of sunshine, dim, dim kind of like, yeah, dim sunshine that the uh, people in this novel get. And um, we... Uh, enter this world uh, through the eyes of our young narrator who has never known a different world. Our young narrator loves the wet, as the people in this novel call it. They enjoy uh, running around outside. They enjoy watching the river that they live nearby grow. They uh, find food. They explore the world. They live with Gammy their um, caretaker and there is a band of villagers uh, across far across the river that they have an uneasy relationship with Um, we come into this novel through the eyes of this young narrator who as I said has known nothing different and as an adult you're reading this book and you're like oh something's Something's happened here. Um, But I think one of the greatest things about this novel is sitting with our young narrator as they live their lives and the events of the novel move forward and slowly picking apart the little clues and pieces that are left behind through conversations that they have with Gammy or memories that they have themselves. Um, It's a very grim world that we find ourselves in. Um, The description of the moulding clothes that people are wearing, the inability to ever be dry, the inability to light a fire, to cook food, all that kind of stuff. All of the normal trappings of a world are really very much stripped away and I think it was a very smart decision by the author to kind of place our lens into this world through somebody who knows no different and actually finds joy in the world around them Um, because as somebody who does not live in this world and can see the contrast between my nice warm couch (laughs) and um, living area to this novel, uh, I think it it gives you the perspective you need and it stops the novel from becoming too grim because as you slowly learn more about what happened and how the world got to this point, and it is very subtle, there's a lot of little clues that are revealed through the novel that kind of make you sit back and and rethink your previous conceptions about what happened and then there's a lot of really uh, point-blank obvious uh, storytelling that Gammy does as well about what happened, it really stops it from being um, too depressing and too grim because you are still in this world through and seeing it through the eyes of this young narrator who is just 
excited to learn and excited to explore and a little bit dismissive of Gammy's concerns and worries until it gets to a point that they can no longer ignore them within the novel. So it's a wonderful kind of dystopian style um, fiction. I know that the author um, was really inspired by a lot of the things that she read when she was younger. So things like James Mars, uh, not James Marsden, John Mars. Um, Marsden, the um, Tomorrow When the War Began series, um, things like that growing up. And you can definitely see that influence here. You can see influences of The Handmaid's Tale or even uh, Margaret Atwood's other famous uh, trilogy, the Mad Adam trilogy. And it is a really... not wonderful but like a wonderful job that the author has done of painting this world and giving you enough clues that you can pick up on but never kind of revealing the full story and never letting us get too dragged into the past because what's also important is this story of our young narrator and their coming of age and their ability to make a life have some sort of journey as we know it in a world that's been stripped away of everything that we would understand as the um, uh, points of life, points of success in life. Mm, Seems like a warming use of innocence. Yeah, a really, when I sat back and thought about it, um, you do, you are protected a bit from the, from those horrors of the recent past fully hitting you. And you do come away with, you know, a sense of dread because, like, what a horrible world to be living in, but a sense of hope that this narrator will find their way in the world, whatever that looks like, whatever that means for them. Mm. And what about the water? What's going on? Is that a... Oh. Is is it a climate thing? Is yeah. it a so it, the without giving too much away the novel the novel talks about it being like this um, you know the the narrator's probably an adolescent like you know they talk about this novel being a coming of age so I'm guessing they're kind of like around the eleven twelve. 13 type age and so it's been like that you know at least over a decade um gammy does talk about a horrible drought that happened beforehand the horrible heat that happened beforehand so it's very much set up to be a reflection on you know climate and uh, the climate disasters that you know people predict for our future um i believe the author also works in in has worked in the past in environmental law and policy so i think probably there was some uh, study done in the past that really influenced i guess her kind of like views around this and and how she kind of um maybe incorporated you know things that uh worst case scenarios basically into her into her story but it is very much like a a climate not climate dystopian novel mm. yeah. does it kind of skew to a younger audience do you think given the narrator's age no not at no all. I think it's definitely a story for adults it's definitely a story that you know kids uh sorry teens could read in high school like great novel I think to kind of like not that I want it to sound dry or anything, but great novel to unpack Doesn't in your sound English dry class. At all. Like mm. real meaty to get it stuck into and, and have a think about. But by no means does the narrator uh, like disregard it from an, from an older audience. Um, you know, I was very frustrated by the narrator at different points, but I think that adds to it. You know, as an adult, you're, you're both reacting to what you're seeing directly in front of you but also like in the head of, of a kid who maybe doesn't quite get it. And that's part of the experience of reading it. Like it took me a while to kind of figure it out, figure out if I really liked this novel because of 
how it was written and, and what it made me feel. But I think it's one of those ones that will really sit with you for a while as you unpack it afterwards, which I think speaks to its strengths and speaks to the messages in it. Is speculative fiction a term that is applied retrospectively on works that maybe were categorised as science fiction? or So the way I understand it is spec fiction is kind of like your softer sci-fi in the sense that um, I uh, read a great spec fiction book that was kind of set in Melbourne, set in a Melbourne that could be a Melbourne now, um, but kind of strange, weird things were happening. So I feel like spec fiction, speculative fiction is more stuff where it seems to be like closer to home, mm. where a couple of weird things might be happening, but it's not quite necessarily the harder, more involved world of sci-fi yes. where you're... And not going off the, not yeah. going warped like, what is it, magical realism? Yes, not quite, not quite going into the magical realism space. Like it's where you like you're building your new worlds, you're traveling in out, not necessarily out of space, but you're building your new worlds. Um, this this feels much more connected to like the immediate. If that if that is clear for for you guys, that's how I would kind of separate the two. But look, people they're calling it spec fic. It's like it's a form of sci-fi as mm. well. It's it's about a future that ha- hasn't quite arrived. And there's yet. no year given. It's vague. No, yeah. very vague. I do think though that it is set in Australia, um, from you know interviews that I've read with the author, and I think it's a really cool idea because I know that there's quite a few novels uh, similar to this that explore like a future Australia devastated by climate, and it's always uh, a drought. You mm. know, fires like storms. Um, Often it's um, the Northern Hemisphere that gets like flood kind of uh, novels like this, but I think it's a really good idea to flip that on its head because, you know, it's it's climate change, it's unpredictable, we don't know. Um, well, it's quite a time to talk be. about it given, uh, but, and we're speaking of the comforting weight of water, yeah. the floods occurring in California right now. Was, yeah. is it, reading the book, is there, does it make you think about floods in a way that you hadn't previously? I think so, being... Being here in Melbourne especially, you we all know what it's like, that horrible damp feeling. And but I'm I'm never kind of like too worried about flooding or anything like that. But then reading about it in California in the middle of like and like in the middle of summer, I know there's flooding in certain parts of Europe as well, all very um seem like seems very odd to us, not what we expect. So it does make you think about all those events in a new way and it does make you fear I guess fear is maybe not the quite, quite the right word, but it does make you wary of water in a different mm. way than you would have been before. Like this river that runs between uh, Gammy and Anarita's house and these uh, distant kind of sinister villages over there um, gets bigger and bigger and it is it rules their lives because they need to move their accommodation every time the river gets bigger. It's their source of food as well, though. It brings rubbish and debris from other villages that they're not really sure even exist anymore, you know, further up the further up the stream or whatever. It's a very, very much almost kind of like a mystical, godlike entity, the mm. river, in this novel. And makes bringing the washing in an absolute nightmare, I'd imagine. Oh, <laughs> it's, it's never getting dry. <laughs> it's never getting dry. Uh, can you tell us again what we've been speaking of? We've been speaking speaking about The Comforting Weight of Water by Rowena McClelland, and that's from Essays uh, Wakefield Press and out and about wherever you might decide to buy a book. All right, The Comforting Weight of Water. Laura Pietrobron, thanks heaps. Thanks, guys. Woo! <sighs> that's right. Triple R.
I've been wearing or experimenting with wearing a high-vis vest while riding my bike. Yeah, be seen, be safe. Have either of you ever donned any high-vis? I have not. No. I have in the capacity of, I think, as a crowd marshal maybe it's oh, something. Oh, okay, or, yeah. Uh, but no, not not in order to be seen just because it was mandated. Yeah, okay, sure. <laughs> well, I was um, wearing it and running some errands yesterday, so on my bike, and so I still had it on and I found myself standing at a pedestrian crossing. Oh, <laughs> yeah. In your high-vis? In my high-vis. Where in, was the bike? The bike was locked up. Oh. <laughs> yeah, so I wasn't on the bike. So, yeah, I'm off it and I'm, I'm running some errands at the pedestrian cross, crossing waiting for it to go green. And I see um, as it kind of ticked off, the green man went. I, I felt like the older woman, like an older lady across on the other side of the road kind of clocked me a little bit and looked to me for like a bit of a signal. And I was like, oh, wow, she thinks... You're a low-pop lady. She thinks I'm a crossing supervisor. <laughs> and I was like, I'm not going to lie, I liked it. Mm. <laughs> it, w- it was a bit of a rush. And obviously, yeah, she kind of, her eyes diverted to me and I kind of wanted to give a signal, like I wanted to maintain that illusion. I didn't want to burst that bubble for her, but also I didn't want to be caught out pretending to be... Um, well, yeah. it's, an, it's an offence to wear... Police uniform. Yeah, you yeah. Can't when you're not a police officer, I should say. Yeah. Cops are allowed <laughs> to wear one. Well, I, I, I've also got a um, a fake badge in my pocket, but that's a whole other <laughs> that's a whole other talk break. <laughs> um, yeah. So I I found myself. I gave her like a bit of a nod, like mm. a vague nod, and then slowly walked across the road and kind of lingered in the middle just to kind of maintain this illusion for her. And then anyway, she went on about her day, but that feeling really stayed with me. She didn't cross the road for the rest of the day. No. No, She kept looking for you. She didn't. Oh, she's actually here now. She followed you. Out the front. Oh, and then for the rest of the day, I found myself kind of lingering around pedestrian crossings, mm. maybe looking for like road work so I can just hang around so I can just kind of say some vague comments like mm. no rush here or just one step in front of the other. That's right. Is that what they say? Keep they moving. really give walking advice. They, they, if not, have their way. Yeah, feel, right. I, I feel like that's just what naturally comes to me oh, when right. I kind of go into it. Yeah, it just it's like this kind of authority but these broad sweeping comments like, okay, someone's in a rush, maybe a little bit condescending. Wolf whistle. Yeah. yeah. It's just this kind of little bit of power or authority that I really enjoyed. Mm. Do uh, they have the lollipop anymore? The, I don't know if they do. I don't think they do either. So me saying lollipop lady was archaic. When you say it? lollipop, do you mean the sign? Yeah. The the stick with the actually, walk when, and go. Last year when I was still teaching, I, I sometimes got crossing duty and I had a stick. Ah. Did I? Did you have high vis? No. That sounds against If protocol. I had a stick, no, I wouldn't need high vis. I would feel like the, the high vis would undermine the stick. Yeah. No, as someone who is, is, was donning the high-vis and the way that lady looked at me, trust me, you want the high-vis. You want it. It comes with the authority. And this was the orange because you can get also the yellow, I wonder. So we're talking a vest? We're talking a vest. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that there is a place for maybe like a roaming kind of pedestrian officer as well. I think it would go a long way. We've spoken about it on this show, people not speaking left, uh, not speaking, keeping left mm. on, the, on the path. 
Like I could just pop on a vest and I could just be kind of cutting the laps of the street, local suburb. Maybe it's like jury duty. You called up, you pick up the high vis and you just kind of patrol, making sure, keeping things orderly. It's good. I think, yeah, and I think with the news of more surveillance in supermarkets that we had yesterday, (laughs) more uh, controlling of the way people walk down the street is a good thing. Yeah, that's that's what people need. society needs. That's what they want. As an adult human pedestrian, I am still not (laughs) come to terms with how I'm supposed to relate to what are now termed crossing supervisors. Mm. Obviously, they're not there for my benefit. So, But I talk to them as though they are essential to my perambulation, that mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, I, I, I could not possibly cross the road were it not for their guidance. No. What, like, what, what do you say? Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, like a nod and the blowing the whistle and like, thank sp- you for the safe passage. I feel mm-hmm. special with the um, with the whistle, and they do. And it's also like, I, you can't get dunked for jaywalking. No, or you can't get tooted at. If it's a flashing red man, yeah. If there's a crossing supervisor telling you you're allowed to go, I witnessed Daniel Burt do this very thing yesterday. Oh, uh, what happened? The lights were changed, about to change, yeah. and started flashing, and then the crossing supervisor, because there's there's one running Up front, blah, um, blew the whistle, and off off he popped. Daniel Burt <laughs> ran across the road in full safety. It was so nice to see. I thought, oh, look at him. He's looking out for each other. It's just nice to be cared for, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of rare as an adult where it's just kind of laid out for you. There's there's no subtext. It's just like it's a whistle. It's my time. Yeah. Get across safe. Apparently sticks are still in and we've got uh, – so lollipops are still prevalent. Yeah. There's one supervisor who always gets me across the road safely, 34 (laughs) years old and no shame. (gasps) Love that. (laughs) Because, I mean, honestly, we're all just a few accessories away from being our own lollipop you know lady person. It's like I got this vest. That was accidental. I have a whistle on my keys. Oh. I put a broad brim hat on me. That's. I mean, someone said texted with a couple of witches' hats and high vis. You can get away with anything. Oh, Slippery I, I slope. Be- I believe it. I mean, and then that's just crossing supervisors. And you could also drop in. Maybe a change of shoes. You put on some rusty boots or something, and you could pop into a building site for lunch. You're oh, you're a site manager. Excellent. Yeah. Free big M. Yeah. No, they're not getting free big M. It was like the world's them. most the least lucrative. Catch me if you can. <laughs> I feel like we're also revealing how out of touch we are with maybe the construction building culture as well. I, thinking we get free, thinking they get free begins. And also, yeah, and also thinking that it's just that easy to wander on a construction site wearing high vis and then you can just build a second story on a house. <laughs> Making sure that pulls in by Christmas. <laughs> Triple R. Regular film review on Triple R's Primal Screen joins us on Breakfast. This morning, Will. Good morning. How are you? Yeah, excellent. Uh, you've been out and about? Yeah, I've been miffing pretty hard. <laughs> it's over now. My evenings are my own again. Yeah. Which is nice. And my afternoons. Well, there's miff plays. That... I haven't looked at miff yeah, plays yeah. because I'm. Uh... Yeah, now I had to catch up on work. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what, uh, what have you caught lately? Um, well, my favourite, uh, one of my favourites from, from the festival that I want to talk about today is called Blackberry, um, which is actually out now, so you don't even have, nobody had to queue for two hours at the comedy <laughs> theatre or whatever. Um, it's a comedy drama um, directed by and starring Matt Johnson. You may know his work from the very funny Nirvana, the band, the show, 
which is a web series about a couple of deadbeats trying to promote their band that doesn't exist, um, or from his previous movie, Operation Avalanche, which kind of flew under the radar, but it's also very funny. It's about a couple of deadbeat CIA agents tasked with faking the moon landing. Sensing a theme. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So this one's quite different. This is about a couple of deadbeat tech bros, um, played by Johnson himself and by Jay Baruchel, um, and they're sort of man-child tech entrepreneurs with poor social skills and a vision. Um, they they want to revolutionise the mobile phone business with their idea for a phone that you can send an email on uh, and they call it the BlackBerry. Uh, and they take their idea to aggressive business jerk Jim Balsley, played by Glenn Howerton from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, um, with his head shaved back into a kind of male pattern baldness um, <laughs> who sort of turns it into gold. Um, and we know how it turns out because none of us have blackberries in our pockets anymore. Um, but it's farcical and sort of shouty and, and, and ludicrous um, version of the story. So it is a true story, sort of. But when I first heard of it, I, I thought that it was probably going to be that part of that current subgenre of inspiring corporate billionaire films, like Air, you know, the, the mm. Ben Affleck one about um, the shoe selling shoe. shoes. Yep. Uh, <laughs> the inspiring story of a man who wanted to sell some shoes. Um, but this is... It's a true story on paper, but it's wildly inaccurate throughout, which is, I think, the right path, the funniest path for it to take. It doesn't play it straight, but it's not completely mm-hmm. absurd either. It's a big, dumb sort of myth version of so the truth. It's not, a, it's not like, a, um, like a mock... No, it, it isn't, it isn't. No, it's not. Like I'm thinking of... Yeah, okay. It's not, it's not totally taking the piss out of those films like Scary Movie or it's, it's, does take it out of horror No, films. no, it's not... No, it's not in scary movie territory, yeah. but nor is it in um, social network mm. territory. So I love the tone of it um, because it, dramatic scenes are all beautifully undercut by some of the stupidest wigs I've ever seen <laughs> in a motion picture, which is entirely deliberate, I think. You know how a biopic, they'll try and show the characters aged uh, by putting the same actor in a different wig? <laughs> well, it's that turned up to 11. I, I, and I think that's indicative of how the whole film is played. They're sort of saying with the wigs, we know this is stupid, but it's funnier this way. <laughs> and it is it is funnier. Um, I did laugh a lot. It's kind of a parody of the corporate downfall, you know, hubris stories, but very OTT. Um, it's men's hubris and ineptitude um, in that turn-of-the-century sort of startup sort mm. of world. Um, and it is men's hubris. It's all about men, white guys... There really aren't any women in it, I'm afraid. <laughs> it's just dudes messing up. Um, and it's, it really hinges on the relationship of these two tech guys who come up with the idea. Mike, played by Baruchel, is a sort of mechanical genius introvert. And his best friend, Doug, played by Johnson, is a, a man-child best friend who makes things happen and keeps things high energy and chaotic and fun. And, and that friendship is sort of cleaved apart by money and the machinations of... Um, business jerk Balsillie who makes them billionaires. So it sort of veers between silly and dry um, and sells the characters so well despite or perhaps because of the absurdity of it. It's very self-aware about its cliches. Yeah, it's it's something special, I think. Yeah. How, so if it's self-aware about its cliches and it's playing wigs for laughs, <laughs> how come it? how can I take it seriously if they don't take themselves seriously? I don't have an answer for that. <laughs> I just found myself thinking about it for days. Yeah. I mean, it's a true. It's essentially a true story, and I know. I think some of the people involved 
in BlackBerry have watched it and gone, that's not really what happened. Mm. Um, but who cares? I mean, all these stories are made up anyway, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a new movie about, I think, is it Dumb Money, the creation of GameStop? Or, or, no, not the creation of GameStop. Remember when the oh, yeah, that the, stock market The gaming. floating of GameStop, which turned into a strange internet sort of meme. I mean, there's interesting stories to tell about this. There things. are, yeah, and it's yeah. they're popping up, aren't they? Uh, yeah. And it, they make you feel... Old, the, the fact that we can get nostalgic about technology. Nostalgic a, for a BlackBerry. <laughs> nostalgic yeah. for, a, for a BlackBerry. I never had one, actually. No. I went straight from my Nokia <laughs> yeah. to an iPhone. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's it, there's also Flame and Hot about the creation of uh, the Doritos. Okay. <laughs> like one flavour of Doritos. Are you kidding? I haven't seen it. <laughs> Um, and I don't know what I don't know what to expect from that. It sounds like it's got a, a bit of like a real stoner kind of quality, stoner I guess film quality so. to I it. I guess so. Yeah, if you've seen any other Matt Johnson work, yeah, it's yeah. it's kind of got a stoner bro kind of vibe to it. Yeah, um, the wigs are something I come back to. And is there a build in it, or is it kind of that silly from the get go? Or do like, we kind of lean in and go, they win us over and? No, we're just that silly from the start. Okay, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we know how it ends. You know, the BlackBerry just fizzles out and it's replaced by the iPhone and that gives it a sense of futility right mm-hmm. from the start, I think, which makes the whole enterprise funnier. I mean, the fact that this isn't really how it happened anyway is even better as mm-hmm. far as I'm concerned. It's an unknown enough story. Um, there's one character in it played by Matt Johnson who I think in real life, because afterwards I was scrambling on my phone, just look, looking up, on my iPhone, I wasn't mm-hmm. looking up... Um, uh, the real people and how much of this is true. Very little, obviously. Mm. But uh, Matt Johnson's character, there just really aren't any photos of the real guy. Mm. So he's gone and played him in a singlet the whole time and a sweatband on his head and he's obsessed with Ninja Turtles. <laughs> they just they just went for it. Is there any risks in making a film like this? Not, not I don't want to go as far as to say defamation, but they are basing <laughs> it on a true story, but then it's so inaccurate. Is it is it clear that they're... They're loose with the truth, and so they can't be done for. Or do they have that classic line at the start that says? I think it says based on a true story, but so many films that are based on true stories are completely false. Mm. Right. Um, The instance that I'm kind of obsessed with at the moment is the Steven Spielberg film Catch Me If You Can. Mm. None of that's true. Mm. What? The guy's a con artist. Obviously, Mm. the story's about a con artist, and this is one of his cons. This story. We could talk about that for oh, a long time. Wow, but these true stories aren't really true. And so what does it matter? Mm. Let's dance, you know. <laughs> as long Go as for it's it. funny. I like yeah. it. So yeah. the stupidity and pointlessness is actually the point. I think so. And it's very, it is very funny. I mean, I saw this at MIF and I was in the, another, in the middle of another film, a very serious film the next day, when I remembered people calling the character Jim Bowsley, Jim Ball Silly. And I laughed out loud at a very inappropriate moment. Nice. <laughs> I off air want to know what the other film was that you <laughs> so distracted. <laughs> Not a good idea to talk about that. All right. Well, what have we been talking about? We've been talking about Blackberry. Blackberry, it's in cinemas now. It's in every it's playing everywhere, I think, now. All yeah. right. Oh, Wide release. Uh, and directed by Matthew Johnson. Will Cox, thank you. Thank you. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. 
Lauren Clark is the creator of the award-winning audio fiction radio serial The Fitzroy Diaries on RN, a TV writer of children's programming with credits including Beep and Mort, Kangaroo Beach and Bluey, a theatre director and Golden Gibbo-nominated playwright, children's book author and columnist for The Big Issue. Her latest project is the memoir Would That Be Funny? Growing Up with John Clark and to tell us about it, the former breakfaster, daughter of the beloved satirist and my long-time radio crush joins us now. Lauren, welcome <laughs> to Breakfasters. Hey. <laughs> Now, is this something that uh, you just had to do? I, literally, um, I I did have to do it because I had a lot of people approaching me about stuff to do with Dad after he died in 2017 and I thought they'd probably stop asking me <laughs> things about Dad and they didn't and so I realised, oh, I guess everybody thinks that guy's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> And also, to be fair, he is. Um, he's he's he was one of those people who, if he was in your life, there was usually you know you had uh, there was a lot there that you could, that went, went deeper than it seemed to. You know what I mean? You know that sort of tip of the iceberg thing where you see someone and you think it's a parasocial relationship, but you kind of think oh, I feel feel like I know what they'd be like, and uh, and I think that he is like what people think he might be like. Um, anyway, so that's all happening. And on the other hand, I'm doing some writing off the back of the Fitzroy Diaries, which was uh, it was sort of a bit more personal than my previous stuff. And then the two things kind of came together. Uh, and this book is about my childhood and his childhood and um, how uh, sort of different they were and, and how that's got to do with, like, an astonishing array of things like, whoops, there was a war a couple of branches back on the on the you know, on the family tree, uh, and, and appearing in court, appearing in court at your own parents' yeah. divorce proceedings. Yeah, yeah, that's that's dad. Um, dad's parents had a very unhappy time, um, but he always said he ne- he never stopped loving them despite the sort of Cold War feeling of like tension and. The, he was the eldest of two and his best is with his sister. But, he's, but he felt that thing that older siblings sometimes feel of he described it as wanting to put Humpty back together again a bit, you know. But anyway, so that's, it's sort of I sort of was dragged a bit to it and not thinking this is – I certainly didn't get up in the morning and go, I must tell <laughs> the story <laughs> of that guy. But, but um, your public demanded it. Well, yeah. <laughs> Um, I was sort of doing two things and they came together. And do you know what? It fell out of me. Mm. Yeah. Like that was actually all those myths about, or well, not myths, but cliches about like, you know, cathartic writing. I, I had never experienced that before, but I, I really, that was really good for me mentally just getting it all figured out. So, yeah. Was there any anxiety as well, I guess, of like telling his history and maybe his family and people are part of his life that you're like, oh, can I say that? Were there any stories you're like, I don't know if I can put that in? Or There's the, the book of stories that I can't put in yeah. is going to come out <laughs> probably I'd say 30 to 50 years from now. Um, but, no, family... I heard back from my auntie Anna oh, last night. What did she say? And all of the air left my body oh. and I felt like so much better. Oh. 
And she said, oh, that's exactly, I love it. It's, she'd, she'd read the whole thing in the, in the day that she'd received it and she said um, all the right things. So oh. that, that she was my only real concern because I had worked alongside Dad a little bit and I used to say to him, you need to write things down because you've got it all in your head and that's fantastic, but uh, it needs to be somewhere else. And then at one point I locked him in a room <laughs> uh, in the podcast room that um, Stu Farrell and I made at my house uh, and we I, I just asked him questions on microphone uh, and I'd get him in next weekend when he came over for a cup of tea and I'd say, get in there and we'll do it again. And we did – I interviewed him and he – so a lot of the things in the book where he's quoted, it's actually from the audio. Um, and he talked about his parents and he talked about all these things. And so when I sort of wondered, am I speaking on his behalf, I could go back to that and I literally quote him. Mm-hmm. So I'm really glad I did that, although I wish I'd kept doing it because uh-huh. I only got up to when he went to university. Well, there's a lot of unpublished comedy writing in the book or kind of humorous missives shared yeah. between family members. What is it, uh, what quality or characteristic makes John Clark the humorous that he was and the writing that it is? Yeah, I don't know that it's one thing. I think he, um, you know, one of the most, one of the biggest sort of, you know, driving forces that I ended up pinning down in the book was that, he had a pretty he he had a pretty unsupported childhood. His parents were at war with each other. They'd been at literal war, both of them. So they 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 they'd seen and heard and and um, done terrible things, or had terrible things done to them. And um, yeah, and then he he sort of uh, I think, and then he went to school. And if he'd gone to a school where he'd been supported, that could have been a different story. But he went to a school where they thought he was should be basically put on an ironing board and ironed out because he and um and he went when he I, I think that kind of gave him a real sense of justice and a real kind of um eye for critiquing the system but it also gave him um he he always knew who he was like even in those early days like there are stories in the book about him going, um, you know, having an argument with his father and his father just withdrawing all support for him entirely and him just thinking, uh, yeah, right, <laughs> kind of thing. He just, he never thought it was personal against him. Is that a quality he passed on to you, do you think? Uh, I think it was, it's interesting because part, partly I think what I discovered while I did this book was that he he kind of made some choices even though they were not didn't feel like choices, but he made some parenting decisions with my mum, who's she and his her family kind of saved him in a way, um, and knocked some sense into him, and did iron him a little bit, if I'm honest, <laughs> on the ironing board. Um, yeah, when uh, after all that, he the the childhood they gave me was like the ridiculously 
like as I said in the book, almost offensively idyllic. Did you play the oboe? I did play the oboe. Just saying that outside. Yeah, I played the oboe. That (laughs) is the degree of my dorkiness. And apparently not enough opportunities to bust the oboe out at parties. You need to change that. I do, yeah. And so a a university dropout as well? Oh, yeah. yeah. Didn't, Didn't finish school, didn't finish uni. Uh, did the thing where, I mean, a lot of it's about also timing. Like he happened to be doing, uh, he joined in this um, amazing kind of university review movement thing that was happening in New Zealand at the time. And then from off the back of that, he um, became sort of one of the first people on New Zealand TV to speak with a New Zealand accent, you know, not good evening, here is the New Zealand news straight out of London, you know. Um, and, yeah, so he kind of found that at just the right time, I think. And there's a passage in the book about advice from a TV executive in New Zealand, like get the hell out of here. Yep. That's – everybody needs someone like that in their lives, <laughs> don't know, they? I know, I know. Because people – I don't mean to take words out of his or your mouth, but people don't know what you're trying to do. Yeah, it's interesting because I think to some extent he kind of was his own product, if you know what I mean. He was and he did understand it better, best. And that's why I think being inside the news departments when he was doing TV, uh, I mean the games was part of the drama department, um, but, but Clark and Doyle was part of news. And I think that's that one of the reasons for that there are many reasons for it but one of them is that it kind of it means there's not much between you and your audience mm. there's not an executive saying no that's not funny mm. or something yeah there's also I'd posit since I can uh, the, <laughs> his wit is obvious but there's not like a legalistic calculated mathematical smarmy quality at all it's very casual and offhand but it's 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 loaded with sharpness but he's just such a laconic figure that it doesn't feel like you're reading a very clever boy right yeah 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 no he was actually insisted on a kind of casual vibe to the point where and I do say this in in the book but to the point where sometimes you're like no you can't Make everybody relaxed. <laughs> I'm stressed. I've got an exam and you're trying to make a joke out of it or whatever. Um, or the time I was sitting in the car and, and I had just broken up with someone, I was a teenager or whatever, and he said, uh, oh, that's the problem with boys, you see. A lot of a lot of them are boys. I don't want to alarm you, but uh, they're, you know, and he just sort of went on this thing and I snapped at him, no, shut up, I'm actually having a, you know, like yeah. a miserable time. But he was very good if if that's what you needed to go take you on a ride out of yourself, mm. which was cool. And the, the incidental parenting as well, just the, the playfulness that comes from exposure and the language that a family develops is captured wonderfully. I feel like I think ages ago Michael Williams on The Breakfasters did a call-ins, you might even remember this, did a um, thing and he had to call in in and say uh, a family word that you thought was real and used in public. (laughs) (laughs) I just think a lot of families have that and even, you know, Dad's pretty miserable time as a kid had there's a a lovely couple of moments that he's never forgotten and clung to 
uh, which are kind of that family um, kind of logic, family um, in-joke type stuff. So, yeah. And there's a full glossary in the book as well. <laughs> yeah, it's not full, Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> it's not full. Oh, it's so fun. Um, all right, well, what have we been talking about? We've been talking about would that be funny? It's out via text. Yep. Growing up with John Clark. It's by Lauren Clark. Are you, how are you enjoying the publicity junket? Uh, I'd rather set myself on fire, <laughs> but otherwise fine. Uh, and and uh, and there's a uh, tell us about a launch. Oh yeah, there's a launch. There's a launch on the sixth of September at Readings in Carlton, and I think it's at six thirty. But you do have to book, but it's free. Okay. So it's one of those ones. Beautiful. Would that be funny? Growing up with John Clark, what a pleasure to have in the studio, the one and only Lauren Clark. Thanks, Lauren. Thank you. Triple R. What a dream to be joined on this auspicious morning by acclaimed artist, children's book author, Triple R volunteer, book week costume inspiration and creator of this year's instant classic Radiothon, Radiothon poster, Ty Snake Morning Time. Oh, good morning, everyone. Thanks for having me. What an epic poster. I can't believe it. <laughs> I mean, if people... Ha- it's, it's the first day of Radiothon, so there's a chance that not everyone will have seen it, but you will see it. Can you tell us about it? Well, I was given a really specific brief for this poster. So, and I think it's the most important part of the story is that the very first Radiothon poster was made by a guy called I'm going to get it. Yeah, John C.J. Taylor back in the like what what, what was that like 60 something? I should 79. know. 79. 79. Yeah. <laughs> See, I've added someone. That's close enough. It's artistic Flourishes. license right there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and he made this really cool poster that's got like a dude on it that's looking he's trying to do he's meant to be doing his homework and the mum walks into the room and says you know what are you doing kind of thing and and he says but mum it's educational it's like and so my brief was to remake the contemporary version of that poster so I sort of thought well you know, there's no mums anymore in terms of like. I mean, there's mums, but <laughs> not in terms of like overlooking kids because yeah. no one knows what their kids are doing anymore. That's right, like, realistically. Mm. Um, but also, class has changed a lot. So, like the way that we do homework, or you know, now we're actually in class at home. Mm. And then I started thinking, oh well, you know, people turn their cameras off in class so they can do other stuff. And she would be listening to. Triple R. So that was the whole concept is that to bring it into the 21st century, although they were in the 21st century before, but (laughs) to bring it into the 2020s, um, I wanted her to be listening to Triple R on her headphones and on her phone and then meant to be in class. But, you know, the whole thing is you're actually probably learning more while you're listening to Triple R than you are in class anyway. And it's educational. So why does it visually pop? Can you give us a secret as to what you do to give this effect? Oh, yeah, that's probably good to describe as well. So I have a ridiculously laborious process of making picture books. So I should say, actually, not all my practice is like this. So I also paint and sculpt and have a serious practice. But then part of... So serious. (laughs) Part of me is so serious. It's like I have a split personality. Um, But this part is more how I do my picture books so it's a technically collage but it's kind of more like I call it building a picture so I paint the paper first in lots of different layers and it's really takes forever and then I sort of cut it out and build it and then I work with a photographer to shoot it I should give him a shout out actually Matt Stanton he's an amazing local photographer um, to shoot it so that it's got these really cool shadows and that's what makes it pop. So it's crazy because really, I mean, I could have just done it on 
you know, procreate MS and paint. would have taken <laughs> would have taken about a fraction of the time. So it really took hundreds of hours to build that. Wow. It's incredible what a like a depth it gives the poster. It really does. I've done some collage in my days and I, you're playing it down with that description. <laughs> and it keeps on giving you look you look through it. There are so many little well, not even Easter eggs, but just so many things. It's like a where's Wally of triple R mementos. Well that was um that was a long process. So it was very much collaborative with Triple R with Kat from Triple R and, mm. and other and all you know there was input from lots of people at Triple R so there are little hints to like you know actually Amy from Amel just shared the artwork uh, oh. zooming in on their, their record um, cover yeah. yeah so there's you know comfort to me and then there's also the floodlights record on top of that so I wanted to sort of hint at those connections to you know it, music is the heart obviously but also the personal collections to the to, um, connections to the station and then you've got Sampa, the Sampa album, which was massive. I mean, she's sort of just like the queen of, you mm. know, one of them anyway. Yeah. Um, and then you've got the old Radiothon poster from last year. Uh, you've got the Trip magazine that Oslo Davis did on the bench. And there's and then there's little things like there's footy boots because that's a big part now. Megahertz. Megahertz, yeah. exactly. And there's like books that have all the sort of titles of some, well, not titles, but topics of some of the, the educational things we, we um, traverse. And I love the little detail that you mentioned. There's a great article as well in the trip all about the poster and the original artist, which is um, exclusive to subscribers. But I loved the detail about you changed out the window to um, oh, yeah. the country. And I, I guess that really speaks to as well, like the far-reaching Triple R. It's not all just about the city, but yeah. the, the community. You know, but also regional. digital. Like now yeah. that we're digital, you know, it used to be halfway up the Hume you couldn't hear Triple mm. R anymore. Like, I used to remember going on drives and be like, oh, Triple R's gone. Whereas now you just put it onto your phone and Triple R's everywhere. Like I've got friends in Berlin that listen to it. Um, shout out to Turtle who's listening from Texas right now. Cool. Yeah, Texas um, Turtle. Turtle. Yeah, and so, you know, like there, there is, yeah, I wanted to make it in the country but I also wanted to bring a few hints at like uh, our First Nation involvement now and our commitment to that and the Banksia wallpaper. Banksia is one of my favourite shows. So in the old mm. poster it used to have daisies on the wallpaper which is very white bread and so I changed them to uh, Banksy's and then it's got Murnong daisies in the pot rather than daisy daisies. So there are a little bit, you know, some some personal political motifs in there too. I also changed her, like, the colour palette is pretty much the same so I was very careful to stick to the very, it's very 70s, early 80s. Like, it, it killed me to use that colour palette but to be honest... <laughs> real primary colours. real primary <laughs> colours. Like, there was no mixing of colours back then but I did want to hint at the millennial palette so there's, like, the lilac the crocs. crocs, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, and even the green of her pants is a little bit more of a contemporary green to what was in the original one. So you know, if you wanted to get super nerdy, that's getting super. That, that really stood out to me. Those color choices, absolutely oh, nailed it. Ty, <laughs> when we walked into this morning, the foyer of the station was dressed like this very room. Yes, I saw that. It's amazing. Mm. It's like there's a little mini set design of the poster that I'm definitely going to go and get a photo in after totally. this. Um, and now. Tell us about your role in, I know you uh, educated listening to the station, but what kind of responsibility do you take when you're on air? Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, I always used to think, oh, no one, no one listens to me, who cares? But then there was a point where I realised that actually to the arts community, Richard Watts is incredibly important because he, he not only like has a great way of looking at art and theatre, but he connects the community and educates people about what's coming up and what's on. And so my little sub-role within his role, I guess, is to talk about visual art. And 
it used to just sort of be my flippant opinion, but now I realise there is actually a responsibility to make sure the community knows about what's going on because there's not that many ways now. I mean, social media is so full-on and saturated and, and it also the algorithms mean that you are stuck within certain streams. So the thing about radio is that you don't, there's no algorithm here. Like, it's, it's what the presenters choose to highlight. And so for me, I really focus on the responsibility of doing a broad overview of the arts, not just, like, the commercial arts or not just the sort of DIY arts but Melbourne is very much the melding of those two things so for me it's like educating those audiences about the all the different variety of visual arts that we have in the city so that's my you know and people listen that once you've done a few radiothons you realize by calling out all the names mm. that there's a lot of people listening and that's a that's a big responsibility mm. and what about the idea of education not being dry as well and oh yeah well that, I mean I guess that's what the post is kind of about is that the education we're all choosing to participate in here is is so much more interesting than being online in class. I mean, that's important too because you get a degree and stuff. But, <laughs> but this is like listening to Triple R, I have learnt so much about just the real world mm. and I think what more to the point of like what our participation in the real world means and the weight of that. So for me, people like Amy Mullins have been incredibly important. So, you know, I've got a lot more involved in the sort of native logging debate and that I learned all about that listening to her show, Uncommon Sense. Um, so shout out to Amy because I think she is a really valuable journalist and voice. And without her, I wouldn't have been involved in that. I just did a big campaign for Bob Brown and raised heaps of money. And, um, yeah, I think that connecting people into their communities and what they you know, their essence, what they want to be involved in. That's what radio does. It's mm. like it hooks you up with these ideas. And so it's a type of – it's like the school of life. Like it's a type of real-life education, I guess. Ugh. And selfishly, what's it like to see your poster everywhere? It's pretty weird, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've been, I've been at Triple R just volunteering for nearly 20 years now, which is crazy. Wow. And I've always looked at the posters and gone, oh, that would be cool one day. And then – they asked me finally and I was like, oh, wow, oh, my God, I'm going to see my poster everywhere mm. and the great wall out the front. And it was interesting yeah. to read uh, John C.J. Taylor, whose mm. original 1979 artwork inspired this, and uh, John speaks about incorporating older artwork within his artwork and mm. you've done the same. Yeah, so he had, um, you know, a, a poster of Elvis Costello and then and then another poster of Summer in the City on his wall and, yeah, it's that meta thing where I've, I've put in, I've referred to his but then put in the old posters as well. But in my original sketch I did have... Um, Annalise Redlick from her first gig as Lothario. Which, awesome. But, you know, we, we, we changed that out. But she's still there in my mind, in my heart. In the trip you can see the original drawing. That's right. Yeah. And so that's 40-plus years and the legacy continues and you've perpetuated it and I suppose that's why what we're asking people to subscribe to. Yeah, and also just to make sure it keeps going, you know, like that, that meta thing doesn't just stop here at this poster. Hopefully in 50 years' time some other young punk's going to be doing some hologram version of my poster. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Give us the website, Ty. Oh, it's um and 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 you and the just your uh, 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 and you just your last that one. And, <laughs> and do it, do it now. Do it for Ty. Do it, uh, yeah. Do, do it, it for me, do please. It. Anyone? Tur and Turtle will be subscribing. Exactly. Right. You can subscribe as well as a visual artist and designer, and there oh, are yeah. specific prizes. There is a ton of amazing prizes, but mm. yeah. yeah, and you know they're expensive those materials. Mm. So definitely, it's not a, it's not to be sniffed at that prize either. There's a few really good visual arts prizes. I've got some subscribers though. That Go I please play. do. So I've got. I'm not as good as you guys. I only do it once a year for Don't one. Don't you show. dare. Um, I'm, I've got Brian Teague from Thorn 
Bonbury. He's a renewal to the web and to superfluity. Eloise Louise Ricard from Healesville uh, is also a renewal with a passionate renewal with a donation of $100. Thank mm. you so much, Elise. To Breaking and Entering, also one of my favourite shows. Uh, Cooper the dog from Thornbury. <laughs> I love dogs that and a renewal. So Cooper's been doing it for a while now. I think so, that's our first pet. As yes, well. yeah. Oh, ding! There should be some kind yeah. of like gong or something. First pet, first kid. Um, Einstein a go go to Einstein a go go. Matthew Hope from Rosebud a renewal to the web to Maps. Also love Maps, and he says please play Insufficient Funds by Eddie Current. We'll leave that to Fee. She'll probably play that. Yeah. Uh, make a little memo for Fee. Um, Adam Renault uh, from. Karam, a renewal to the web to Neon Sunset, and he says, hopefully I haven't missed the Radiothon Wu-Tang tradition cream triple R is for the children. I have no idea what that means, but anyway. <laughs> Thanks for subscribing. Let's hope um, Gumby Hospitable Imagery hmm. from Ripponley is a renewal, artist renewal to the web, yes. uh, by the web, um, to Breakfasters. The artist, otherwise known as Gumby, loves being woken up by the Breakfasters daily. Enjoy the week. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. That's beautiful. Uh, Well, Ty, thank you for all your work and your advocacy and your uh, passion and affection leaps off the poster. Oh, I'm so glad. I'm stoked to see it in use. And um, everyone just, yeah, get off your bums and subscribe. Beautiful. Uh, RR.org.au. Ty Snaith, thank you. Triple R. Thanks for listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters, the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or via the Triple R website.